Мы начинаем церемонию прощания с Дарьей Дугиной. This morning in Moscow at a TV station, there was a funeral service for a young woman named Darya Dugina. She was driving on a Saturday night from a festival that she attended with her father, Alexander Dugin, who is this prominent ideologue and um, sort of mystic philosopher, proponent of Russian expansion. And her car exploded while she was driving on a highway in a really elite neighborhood, um, killing her in the spot. Mary Lushina is a reporter who covers Russia for The Post. Russian officials pretty much immediately after um, this attack said it was done by Ukrainian special services um, because both uh, Alexander Dugin and his daughter Daria were really staunch proponents of this war and, and allies of, of Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. And they're credited at least partially with sort of creating this ideology that sees Ukraine as part of Russia and denies it independence. And it is seen um, as an escalation to this conflict because there are a lot of calls now to retaliate and sort of, you know, get vengeance and avenge her death. And that's why there's a lot of concern that this could be a step towards this escalation that Russian forces may attack some Western cities in Ukraine. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 23rd. Today, why this car bombing in Moscow has become a flashpoint in the war in Ukraine, and what it could signal is coming next. So Mary, what do we know about why this happened and who is responsible for it? So, so far there are several competing theories. Um, Russian officials immediately after the attack, blamed Ukraine for this, um, saying that it's the work of Ukraine special services. And then on Monday, Russia's internal intelligence uh, service came out with an official assessment saying, yes, we believe this was Ukraine. But that theory is, you know, very much debated because Dugin and his daughter are a little bit odd targets for the Ukrainians to um, even think about because, They are intellectuals, philosophers, they're known in a sort of a tight circle of people, but they don't, you know, necessarily um, influence any sort of military decisions. Hmm. And what other theories are sort of going on is that it was possibly an internal sort of false flag attack, but for what particular reason that was done, we don't know yet. We can only speculate. And the speculation is it was either done by the sort of hawkish groups within the special services to push the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin to be harsher and take a harsher stand in Ukraine and attack more central cities like Kiev, or the opposite, that Dugin's ideas and their sort of stance um, against Ukraine is crossing a lot of lines, and it is a sign for that camp, that hawkish camp, to dial it back. So let's back up for a second. Tell me, who is Daria Dugina and why might she have been targeted for this attack? She is also a political commentator, philosopher, and sort of 
aspiring intellectual. She ran a website um, called United um, World International, which the United States says is um, a sort of disinformation website that is spreading a lot of um, uh, false narratives about uh, Russian geopolitical goals and, um, you know, about Ukraine. And she was quite spoken out against uh, Ukraine and, and she's very pro-war. Um, and she's also argued that the massacre in Bucha, um, a, a town near Kiev where, you know, nearly 500 people, civilians have been found dead and often in very sort of terrible circumstances is mm-hmm. was staged. And wow. she says it's just a portrayal um, of how the West is trying to um, launch smear campaigns against Russia. Wow. But at the same time, it sounds like a lot of people think that she was not, in fact, the target of this attack and that her father was. So tell me more about her father, Alexander Dugan, and why he might have been the target. Yeah, a lot of people think he was probably the target also because his sort of friends and family came out and said that this was his car and, and you know, they were supposed to leave this a festival together. Um, and he's way more prominent than Daria. Daria was famous in even a smaller circle of sort of these aspiring traditionalists. Um, but Alexander Dugin has been active for decades and he, you know, he never held any government positions. So he was never an official uh, Kremlin advisor or anything like that. But he's credited with influencing and sort of turning this thinking about Ukraine mainstream that eventually led to the Kremlin adopting a lot of his ideas and backing this invasion um, into Ukraine as this almost, you know, sacred war that they are leading and waging to improve Russia's greatness. And what is Dugin's relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin? That is a subject of a lot of debates among sort of intellectual circles. Um, Dugan himself is very known for being a very good self-promoter. So he, some analysts believe that he made his importance um, a little bit bigger than it actually is. And, you know, Dugan, in, especially in the Western press, uh, is often referred to as Putin's brain or like Rasputin, you know, in reference to the advisor to Tsar Nicholas II. But... The relationship he has with Putin is not entirely clear. What we know for a fact is that a lot of his talking points about Ukraine have been at least co-opted by the Kremlin. And you could hear Putin say some of the thoughts that Dugin was writing about in his speeches in the run-up to the invasion. And that Dugin is a huge, huge uh, supporter of Vladimir Putin. You know, he said theories and analysis about, you know, that there are two Vladimir Putins. He called them a lunar and a solar Putin. And the Putin of the sun is sort of essentially God of war who is going to be waging this expansionist policy, which, you know, we see now. And Dugan says that this is the Putin who um, has come out as the winner. And the lunar uh, Putin of the moon is the sort of pragmatic and um, strategic leader. And Dugan was obviously advocating for the other one, the solar one. So who is investigating this explosion and how much can we trust this investigation and the the evidence that they come up with? 
The investigation now is in the hands of Russia's main investigative body called the Investigative Committee and also the FSB, which stands for the Federal Security Service, and it's the main uh, domestic security agency in Russia. They, the FSB, on Monday came out and said that they've solved um, the crime in you know less than 48 hours. They have accused hmm. a Ukrainian national, a woman, um, who, according to the FSB and sort of their version of events, traveled to Russia with her you know very young daughter in a Mini Cooper and swapped car plates multiple times and apparently tracked Dugins and went to the same festival as them where she apparently placed this bomb. And she then left to the EU through Estonia. So so she drove out of Russia. That's uh, sort of their uh, theory. And so far, it's not clear how they will be tracking her down or if they will be tracking her down because, you know, they claim that she has left. But that theory, especially among Russian independent analyst has been taken apart and there's no real trust in it because there are a lot of Hmm. holes in the story because they ask really valid questions is, you know, it seems like they have been knew who this woman was. They let her into the country really easily with an explosive and then, you know, let her um, leave through Estonia, even though um, the Estonian border with Russia has essentially been shut down by Estonia and there is a huge spat with Russia uh, over visas and sort of entry points. So this theory has not been you know, really well received or you know, believed mm-hmm. to be explaining what happened. Hmm. What has Ukraine officially said about this attack? Ukraine denies um, having anything to do with this attack. They were really sort of strong in their denial, saying that, you know, this absolutely was not us. And the um, Alexei Danilov, who is the head of uh, Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, warned that the FSB could be launching what he called terrorist attacks that cause casualties in Russian cities. You know, he said that, you know, this would be just a, like Dugin's killing is the first in a series of attacks organized by the FSB. Um, and he linked it to the way that some terrorist attacks at the very beginning of Vladimir Putin's presidency and reign have really bolstered support um, for him amongst general population. So um, he basically alludes to um, the fact that these kind of attacks are just done internally by Russian special services to hype up support for this war and for Putin once again. You know, what happened here kind of reminds me a little bit about some of the discussions that we were having at the beginning of this war, when people talked a lot about the idea of Russia having some kind of false flag operation, basically this um, theory that they could plan an attack or do something that they frame Ukraine for, that this could be an inciting incident that Russia uses as an excuse to escalate the war. Are there, are there concerns that this could be that kind of false flag operation, that Russia could have done this and be pinning this on Ukraine to make Ukraine look bad or, or making a, a, a justification for an escalation of this conflict? 
That is definitely a concern because Ukraine Independence Day is just around the corner. Uh, It's celebrated on the 24th of August. And Ukraine officials have been really worried about the state becoming this catalyst for renewed Russian attacks, uh, potentially even on Kiev. Because independence is something that the Russian authorities are denying Ukraine through this invasion. And, you know, it would be a very symbolic move for them to target some government buildings or any sort of any Ukrainian, you know, decision centers, as the Russians like to call it. So there really is an understanding that this could be a way and a step towards escalation because Russian campaign has been stalling for several weeks, if not months now, and they have been only uh, gaining ground uh, little by little in the east of the country. And this is something that some of the, the, again, the traditionalists in hawkish camp in Moscow is not really happy about it. So that's why there's a lot of speculation this could be used as a way to make Russia go back to its global goal and, you know, retake all of Ukraine. Hmm. And and so what would that mean for the war, that this could be an inciting incident that causes Russia to kind of refocus on reaching further west into Ukraine or or continuing or even increasing the amount of shelling that they're doing? Yeah, uh, it could be shelling, it could be airstrikes, which they have not been doing you know, very often recently, especially not targeting Western cities. But the question again remains whether it's possible to implement all of that, because Russian campaign has been stalling for a reason. And that reason is they don't have enough manpower to sustain this large of an attack. Um, that's why they have been struggling on several fronts um, of this invasion. You know, their front lines stretched over hundreds of kilometers and their casualties mounted really, really fast. So they that's why they had to refocus this campaign to target only sort of uh, the eastern parts of Ukraine. And their um, attack on Kiev has failed, uh, even though they've initially believed it will take them, you know, about three, four days to uh, reach the city and take the capital, which obviously did not happen because they've, um, you know, severely miscalculated that. So there's obviously concern, um, but we also have to understand that it's not as easy to turn around this war and, you know, for Russia to bolster its advance. After the break, we talk about the power plant in eastern Ukraine that has become a key battleground in the war. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So, Mary, as we're closing in on the six-month mark in this war, there's also been a lot of attention on this power plant in eastern Ukraine. Can you talk about this power plant and why it has become important, especially now? 
Sure. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is the biggest one in Europe, um, and Russia has occupied and controlled it since March. But the team that is running this nuclear plant that you know, still operates it um, is Ukrainian. So the Ukrainian officials have basically said that you know, Russia is holding these people um, hostage, and they are going through a very, obviously, traumatic experience at the moment because there is constant shelling. And Russia is essentially using this base as a fortress because it is obviously very dangerous for the Ukrainians to uh, target it in any specific um, and sort of a big way because that will lead to damages that, you know, that Ukrainian team may not be able to fix. And obviously that could lead to really grave consequences. I, I have one very basic question here, which is if Russian forces now have control of this nuclear power plant, why are the Ukrainians still operating it? Like, why are the Russians letting the Ukrainians still be there to to run this plant? Well, because, you know, you can't just bring some, you know, random scientists to operate a nuclear plant. You know, these people know how to operate this plant and they're the ones uh, keeping it uh, running smoothly. So hmm. I think for the Russians, that's a way to obviously not get themselves killed and not, you know, get it. Um, so out of control that it explodes. Hmm. And they're doing that thanks to the Ukrainian team that they're holding there. Interesting. So what are the fears around what's happening now? Like, what are the ways in which this nuclear power plant is starting to be a safety threat? Yeah, well, there are a lot of fears connected to sort of just the level of activity around this nuclear plant, because both sides, uh, you know, have accused each other of shelling, a Russian side is saying that, you know, it's Ukraine provoking um, the attack and they're trying to destroy this nuclear plant. Ukrainians, uh, you know, saying um, the exact opposite. It's the Russians that are risking the safety of all of Europe just to have their um, fortress. Um, you know, there's instances where the reservoirs with the sort of the waste um, fuel, I guess, uh, were um, pierced and, you know, there were already some damage done to um, these containers sort of on the perimeter of this nuclear mm. plant. And another thing that's important, there is an electrical grid that is connected to this uh, nuclear plant. And if that gets disconnected, um, that would potentially, you know, send this nuclear plant into an emergency mode, which is, again, really threatening. There are obviously systems in place to uh, contain it, but overall, everyone is concerned about it as being essentially on the front line and in a war zone between the two sides. Uh, mm. Because one mistake, one wrong move can obviously turn it into a really, really bad disaster that is, you know, and obviously everyone remembers Chernobyl. So, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that's the example that at least is sticking out in my head of like, oh, my gosh, if something went wrong at this power plant, you could be looking at another Chernobyl. Yes, that's the that's the fear here because you know Chernobyl is also in Ukraine and uh, just because of negligence and the flaw in, in its construction, it turned into the worst nuclear catastrophe that uh, sort of Europe and the world has seen. So the fear is that it could be, you know, if something bad were to happen, it would probably be even worse because uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is bigger and you know being as I've said, on the front line, it obviously is a cause for concern for not only Ukraine and Russia, but for all of Europe. Yeah. 
you know, it seems like for many of us at this six month mark, we're all wondering, when is this war going to come to an end? And I'm sure that there is no one who is wondering that more than people who are in Ukraine and who are in Russia. And so when we think about this conflict over this nuclear power plant and this kind of struggle to to control it, how is that making it more difficult to find a way to the end of this war? Yeah, I feel like at this stage, there's really no no willingness to negotiate because it's gotten so far and it's gotten so bad that, you know, even a nuclear plant being taken by the Russians is not enough for anyone to negotiate peace because everything else is so bad. So I think at this stage, at the very least, I don't see a very clear end or any signs that the two sides will be able to, you know, sit down and negotiate for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, mainly, you know, the Kremlin has, you know, even when they were holding negotiations and sort of promising um, ceasefire, um, Ukraine said that none of that was really implemented. So, you know, questions sort of arises was that peace talk with the rounds of peace talks um, just a way to win some more time to regroup or was this a real um, serious initiative? So that is still very much up to um, debate. Um, And there are a lot of lines that, you know, for Ukraine, Russia is crossing right now with regards to the Ukrainian prisoners of war. Um, There is, again, a tribunal expected um, in Mariupol, which has been occupied by the Russians. Um, And, you know, there were threats of, uh, you know, death penalties to Ukrainian, um, to soldiers, foreign soldiers who were fighting for um, Ukraine with the Ukrainian military. So, you know, there was a lot of bloodshed, obviously. And for, I think, Ukrainian population looking at all these atrocities in Bucha, Irpin, and many, many other towns, it's a question whether there will be any general consensus, you know, that, you know, a peace deal at the stage would be enough. Mary Lushina covers Russia for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svarnovsky, who also mixed today's show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.